Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. On today's episode, Aaron Rodgers and LeBron James on Christmas Day and the value of a good story. Christmas time represents a lot of things for me right near the top of the list. As I've gotten older, Christmas time has come to represent uh, the passage of time. It's about tracking the passage of time, understanding that there's a finite amount of life that exists, uh, and we are all a part of that. It's just a simple reminder. You know, I see family. Uh, not everybody lives in this area, so um, a-, a lot of times I don't see them that often, and Christmas time is one of those specific moments that we're together and I'm going, oh, you look different or you got this new job or now you're engaged or now you have a new house or all of these things that are moments uh, that can kind of represent that. Uh, these these larger things we point out and go, wow, something big has occurred, change has occurred, time is passing and Christmas time really represents that for me now in present day as a 35 year old. So I've been thinking about this over the last week because Christmas obviously took place. And I've also been thinking about it because not too long ago, I read a book called The Overstory. It's written by a very good author. His name is Richard Powers. And the book won a Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Um, and this book resonated with me on a lot of levels. One of the levels is that It told a story so well about something that I don't really care about, but because it was told so well, I ended up not only caring about that thing, but I ended up thinking about the areas that that I care about deeply in my life and the passions that I have. The overstory is about a lot of things, but one of the main things is trees, which sounds funny because I don't don't love trees. I don't hate trees, at least I thought. And then I read this story and I felt like I had this immense love for trees. Because part of what is threaded into this story is the idea that, hey, there's a lot of living organisms here on Earth, and they're all a part of uh, of that idea that I mentioned that that I really feel at Christmas time. Uh, They're all here passing time. And there are two quotes from this book that I want to share with everybody today because I think they're meaningful And they're also going to segue into what I want to talk about in the world of sports. This is the first quote. The best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. Now, I agree with this wholeheartedly. There are a few things that resonate more with me than this idea. Uh, Those of you who've listened consistently to this show or have read what I write or have talked with me in person, you probably have a sense that I don't argue a lot of things, um, which is uh, not super common within maybe life, but but especially within the world of sports where it's pretty much all argument-based in how sports are covered. Um, But what I am passionate about is sharing my own personal stories and listening to others because I believe in that quote. Arguments, yeah, whatever. Most times it's going to be people shouting and not really wanting to 
understand what's going on. Uh, but a, a good story, if it's told well, I do think it opens up your mind in a way that very few things can. Um, that's where I believe the greatest value lies. It's human experience. It's small stories that are told in a way that come to mean something larger. That's where the value of a good story lies. Uh, that's kind of a commandment of writing, of that creative process. It's taking something small and telling it so clearly and distinctly in a personal way that people can read it and understand the larger themes that are threaded into that. It's why you never ask who the audience is when you write because you are writing about your own experience. You are not writing for others. It's kind of a common misconception within that creative process. Um, but the very best things, the things that truly do open your mind, it's a very personal tale that the author or the creator says, no, this is my experience. And I'm going to tell it passionately. I'm going to tell it clearly. And if I do both of those things, then people will understand. So there's another quote that uh, comes from the overstory that pertains to time, pertains to the passage of time. And just kind of, A, being aware of it, and B, uh, the feeling that I personally get when I understand it, when a moment occurs and it threads into the larger narrative of my life. So this is the second quote. But people have no idea what time is. They think it's a line, spinning out from three seconds behind them, then vanishing just as fast into the three seconds of fog just ahead. They can't see that time is one spreading ring wrapped around another, outward and outward until the thinnest skin of now depends for its being on the enormous mass of everything that has already died, end quote. So I love that too, and it's something that I think about and try to live according to the idea. It's the two aspects of time. One, time is now. Two, time is forever. And how both of those things work in unison. How I'm always trying to be cognizant of both of those things. Time is now and time is forever. The first part, it's about the concentration of living in the moment. Something I've spoken about a lot on this show. Something that I try to consistently do every day. Being present. Whether that's me by myself or around other people. It's saying, hey, this is a moment that I want to be a part of because I am here now and I'm willing to be a part of it and be happy and be passionate about it and give whatever I have to give now in this moment. Despite the fact that I know there's three seconds of fog behind me and three seconds of fog ahead of me. That's the first part. Um, and the second part is this idea of the tree rings. It's time is forever. It's We're all tied together. Um, we all realize that everything we do from these tiny moments up to larger ones, it's all part of, of a larger narrative for our own life and for how our lives spreads into others. It's the one spreading ring wrapped around another over and over and over and over out to infinity. So the moments of comprehension when 
those rings make sense, even for just a moment. Those are pretty profound and overwhelming. It's something that I always like to make note of in just my own personal journey in life and how sports is intertwined with my life. It's living in the moment. It's appreciating these games as they happen and saying, I don't care what, I don't care who wins the championship this year. That game was awesome. That individual performance was awesome. And then all of those tie together over the course of time. And every once in a while, I have a comprehension and I go, man, this is pretty cool. And this is pretty crazy that this thing has been a part of my life for a long period of time. And I understand it and it means something to me. So that leads us into Christmas Day, where my two favorite athletes of all time are both playing. Aaron Rodgers, my favorite football player of all time, and LeBron James, my favorite basketball player of all time. And as I watched both of these games, Rodgers and the Packers, they're playing the Cleveland Browns during the day, and LeBron and the Lakers are playing the Nets after the Packers game was over. I was thinking about some of this stuff as it was going on, and especially once both games had finished. And just the idea of how a small story can seem to represent so much for me. In this case, it's just the story of the one individual game, or or the two individual games, I guess I should say. So I'm tuning into the Packers game, and I'm fired up because on the moment is now level, I'm very aware that every game left with Rodgers playing at an MVP level is a gift to a fan who truly appreciates high-level quarterback play, and especially high-level quarterback play that is so unique that, to me, it's breathtaking. Rodgers is 38 years old. He spent 17 seasons in the NFL. So you understand the grains of sand are nearing the end of the hourglass. So I'm always fired up to watch the Packers and Aaron Rodgers. And going into the game, one of the big storylines is Packers are chasing the number one seed, but... Aaron Rodgers is tied with Brett Favre for the franchise record of passing touchdowns. 442 touchdowns he enters the game with. Exact same amount of passing touchdowns that Brett Favre had during his illustrious Packers career. Now, I'm thinking of this coming in because that's a really long time to watch two quarterbacks play. I came in in the mid-90s. That's when I became old enough to understand football and like it. And Favre was the thing that introduced me to the NFL game. And that's where I really got a thirst for Packers football and the NFL. So Favre becomes the starter in 1992. I become a Packers fan about three years later. And from that point until now, every single season that we've entered into, uh, either Brett Favre or Aaron Rodgers has been the starter for the Green Bay Packers. Credible amount of time, right? We're up on almost 30 years now. So I'm aware of this, the the time is now, time is forever aspect of what is taking place on the field. Now, I wasn't fully prepared for the, the first touchdown that Rodgers throws, which breaks the record. I thought it'd be cool, but for whatever reason, it just kind of like 
I'm watching him throw touchdown pass 443. Gets Alan Lazard in the flat. He makes a little move, breaks it, gets to the pylon, touchdown. Breaks Favre's franchise record. So the crowd's going nuts. They're showing a video from Favre on the Jumbotron. Um, and I'm fired up about it because Aaron Rodgers is my favorite football player. And it's also put the Packers up and hopefully they can win this game and, you know, continue on their trek to get the one seed and get a bye and hopefully he can mend his toe. All the stuff that's happening right now. But then they have a flashback to his first touchdown pass, which was on Monday Night Football in 2007 at the Dallas Cowboys. Tony Romo was the quarterback at the time. And Favre gets injured in this game. And Rodgers comes in. He actually plays reasonably well. And his first touchdown pass is to Greg Jennings. So it shows this, and I hadn't really thought about this in a long time. And I see it, and I just remember. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't. That's very weird. I have a vivid recollection of this specific touchdown and this specific moment. I, I had essentially a flashback to what was going on in my life, where I was watching it, who I was watching it with. I had a group of friends that lived in Springville, Utah, and they invite me over. One's a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And then I had another buddy uh, who's a Packers fan. And so we had a group of us there together and we're all sitting there. And I remember the Packers are supposed to lose and the Cowboys were awesome that year and Romo was great. And Barb gets injured and we're all pissed because we wanted a good game. And then Rogers showing enough that I'm like, who's this? Oh, this is kind of intriguing, you know? I wish Favre would come back, but this Rogers guy looks kind of okay. And we're talking about it at the time, and I'm kind of recalling some of the conversations that we're having. I mean, this is 14 years ago. Very different time and place in my life. So that's the first one, and then it goes to the Alan Lazard one on Christmas. And it kind of equated to a true moment of comprehension for me. Uh, how meaningful a moment can be, a small story, just a simple touchdown pass to Alan Lazard, um, and how all of those combine over the course of time to be one spreading ring wrapped around another. And when you're there for all of it, which I've been there for literally 443 touchdown passes. Well, now I think 445 after, uh, after the Browns game. Uh, it, it takes on a weightier aspect. Um, so the Packers end up squeaking out a victory. That's the time is now component. And it's interesting to note in the, the grander narrative of this show, which a lot of it is about margins. It's about how this stuff is decided um, on an individual game in an individual season over the course of career. How... These things that I don't think we we really talk about a lot are what end up deciding the outcome. Um, the Packers were very lucky to win that football game. They said as much after the game. I think that was a quote verbatim from Devontae Adams, who dropped a pass that could have potentially sealed it and gave the Browns another chance. They're down by two near midfield with time dwindling. I was convinced that somehow they were going to win and I was already mad about it. But all the margins go Green Bay's way in this specific game. Turnovers, I mean, Baker Mayfield was abysmal. Um, the Cleveland Browns, they miss an extra point. They're chasing that. They got to go for two. They miss that. It's essentially two points that you would take for granted. You would say, 
NFL kicker should be able to just make two extra points. But they're not there, and the Packers' winning margin ends up being two points. It's not as simple as that, but that's that that's part of the story. Um, and most importantly, the referee calls all go Green Bay's way, including on what amounts to the game-sealing interception. Rasul Douglas commits pass interference, illegal, illegal contact, holding, whatever you want to call it. It was a penalty, and they just, the refs didn't call it for whatever reason. So he handles the receiver, gets leverage off of it, jumps the pass, catches it. Green Bay gets one first down, game over. Now, again, I'd like to note, uh, when the Browns got the ball for their final drive, I was already starting to bristle. And what I felt within the moment was, uh, this is the worst this is the worst way for Green Bay to lose the stranglehold on the one seed. And it's just one of those things that I can't ever get away from. The unjust nature of football games and how if you're following, it seems too crazy to comprehend because I'm sitting there and the Browns have the ball at midfield and I'm going, how on earth could Baker Mayfield play as poorly as he has played in this game and beat Aaron Rodgers? who played 500 times better, who's been the best quarterback in football this season, who is the MVP of football, in my opinion. How on earth are the Browns 15 yards away from a potential game-winning field goal and Baker Mayfield ends up, at the time he'd thrown three picks, it ended up being four. He'd thrown two more passes directly into the chest of Green Bay defenders. I mean, we could have had a six-interception game with just simple catches from... Eric Stokes. He's missing wide open receivers. He's duffing it behind Rashad Higgins. He's doinking it over Austin Hooper's head. And meanwhile, Rodgers is doing what Rodgers does. He's throwing it on the dime here, dime there, touchdown here, touchdown there. Biggest play of the game, it's Rodgers taking a snap and putting it right on the money to Devontae Adams down the left sideline between a defender behind and a defender in front. It's just a, it's just a perfect pass from Aaron Rodgers. And Devontae Adams drops it. And that's what sets up this final drive. And the whole time, I'm just thinking about all of this stuff. And I'm going, I can't believe it. It seems insane that when one team beats another, we always say, ah, this quarterback, they must be better than the other quarterback. It's just a note that I wanted to make, even though things end up going Green Bay's way. A lot of which had nothing to do with Aaron Rodgers, the referees. Cleveland's kicker. Uh, Baker Mayfield just tossing the ball straight into the air at times and allowing Green Bay to intercept it. Instead, it went the other way. And so Green Bay continues its hopeful march towards the one seed in a first-round bye. Hopefully, Aaron Rodgers' toe is able to heal. But this game it represented what I was reading within the overstory with Richard Powers. Time is now. Time is forever. A uh, small moment there on Saturday. But watching this touchdown occur and understanding it, oh, this is a, a measurement of the passage of time. This is 14 years after I watched that first touchdown. That's a really profound feeling. Uh, it's the idea that, you know, a small story, even if it just means something just to you, if you can tell that well, it means everything. People can understand that. That's a universal feeling. We all have those small things within our lives. 
that mark the passage of time that have been there for a long time. And when it dawns on us, when we comprehend it, we go, oh, that's really cool. So that leads into the second game of the day and my other favorite athlete of my lifetime, LeBron James. Now, the Lakers season has been a disaster on virtually every level. I cannot fully describe how much I despise watching Russell Westbrook play basketball in general. I've talked about that a lot in the past, but I cannot describe how much I despise it when he is on the same team as LeBron James. They are diametric opposites in how they want to play basketball. LeBron is the supercomputer who wants to do everything in his power to ensure that his team wins and he possesses the skills to fill any necessary gap. And Westbrook is the person who wants to do everything on his own terms and it doesn't necessarily matter what it contributes towards. He just wants to know that he was the one who affected the outcome. So the Lakers season has been a disaster. Partially because of that, partially because... Anthony Davis is injured like he always is, partially because LeBron has missed games because he's getting old, partially because there's been COVID disruptions left and right. So I'm not that fired up for this game, but I'm just like, yeah, sure. It's, it's, a, it's a chance to watch LeBron. I got to take the opportunity to do that. Even if these Lakers games, they're just, oh man, they're hard. They're hard to stomach sometimes. And instead, this game was, it turned into another one of those small moments, the small stories for me. Because much like, Aaron Rodgers, I'm at the point with LeBron where I go, I, I know that there's probably not a lot left of this guy being able to channel what makes him, in my opinion, the best basketball player ever. And Christmas Day, it was one of those moments he was able to channel. It's LeBron looking like LeBron has always looked, that unreal combination, power, physicality, athleticism, smarts, all of that kind of stuff. And it's the LeBron box score. It's 39 points. It's nine rebounds. It's seven assists. It's three steals. It's one block. It's 14 for 25 shooting from the field on only with only three turnovers. It's all of that stuff that, I mean, I've seen that box score a trillion times over the last 15 plus years. It was the bowling ball LeBron where he just gets the ball sometimes and he's like, no, there's literally nobody here that is going to stop me from getting to the basket. So, he leads the Lakers back from a 23-point second-half deficit. And this seizes me because LeBron's doing all the LeBron stuff, and I'm going, I know this is just a dumb regular season game, and the Lakers are most definitely not winning an NBA championship this year, and they will not as long as Russell Westbrook is on their team. But this is a really uh, entertaining moment, and on a larger scale, it's kind of meaningful because it's reminding me of certain things. The Lakers fall short at the end. So they lose. Again, it's just a regular season game. Who really cares? The backbreaker is a clip that if you watched it multiple times like I did, you truly can't just fathom what Russell Westbrook is doing sometime. Um, he's supposed to be guarding Patty Mills, the most dangerous shooter on the Nets, who went off in that game to the tune of 30-some-odd points. And the Lakers are down by two. Time is dwindling. And there's a full possession where Russell Westbrook just, he falls asleep at the wheel. He's just kind of trotting around aimlessly like a, you know, like a milk cow out there grazing in the field. And you don't know what he's doing. And Mills ended up getting the ball in the corner wide open, cans a three, and that's essentially ball game. So again, it's just a regular season game. At the same time, I get that sense as I'm watching 
I'm going, man, how long can LeBron honestly play basketball like this? Even if it's just for one game, I, I think it's unrealistic to say he could do that for a season. He's just, he's too old, but he can still channel this in spurts, which gives you some hope in the playoffs, but you also realize Russell Westbrook is going to be there in the playoffs. So it's the small story. Time is now, time is forever. LeBron's performance in the moment is awesome. Awesome. Thrilling, scintillating, breathtaking, all those things for me. But it also provides that greater comprehension. It's the tree rings expanding outward. And for me, it's my understanding of LeBron's career. It's watching large portions of it where I would always talk with people and go, he is on an island on this team. His teammates, his coaching staff, his management, they are failing him. They are not giving him what he needs. He is bringing it day in, day out. He's as good as anybody in basketball. But that can only go so far. So I'm feeling that as I'm watching the Christmas game because I go, man, I remember that 2007 playoff run that was incredible. It's really when LeBron burst onto the scene as LeBron, LeBron. Because he dragged this sorry-ass roster of Zydrunas Ilgoskis and Booby Gibson to the NBA Finals. The Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons, who had won a championship, who had played in other finals in the last couple of years. Game five, LeBron scores everything down the stretch into overtime. Cavs win in double overtime. And it's exciting, and they're going against the Spurs in the finals, and then it's just a dump trucking. Spurs sweep them. LeBron can't do anything. And the people who didn't like LeBron at the time go, this is, I mean, yeah, okay. We know, we know the flaws here. That sets off years and years, as we all know, of just me arguing on behalf of an individual can only do so much. And a lot of other people saying, he is at fault. He is the reason that his team cannot win a championship. So I think we're kind of past that at this point in time because we've seen LeBron win so much. And we've also seen other moments where LeBron is on the island and he's dragging his team as far as they can possibly go. And it's almost more entertaining and stunning to watch than when he won championships. That's a little bit of the feeling that I'm getting from the Christmas Day game. It's that 2007 playoff run. It's the 2015 finals against Golden State. First year they get there, and Kyrie fractures his kneecap, and Kevin Love's out with a separated shoulder. And it's LeBron, and Timothy Mozgov, and Matthew Dellavedova, and LeBron does everything in his power to extend that series, and it goes six games, and he should have been finals MVP. And instead they gave it to Andre Iguodala because nobody knew what to do. They're like, LeBron was clearly the very best player in the series, but they lost, and, and we can't ever separate individual performance from a team success, so we can't give them the final. Well, what do we do here? But that's another reminder. It's the 2018 finals run. Same thing, last year in Cleveland, when just his roster is decrepit, and LeBron's getting older, and we're like, ah, can he really tap into playoff LeBron anymore? And somehow he does. And they go to Game 7 against the Celtics in Eastern Conference Finals. LeBron plays 48 minutes. He just does everything in that game. The second-best player for the Cavaliers is Jeff Green. That's all you need to know about this team. They get to the Finals and just get waxed by Golden State because why wouldn't they? But uh, as a person who watched all of these things, the championships and the runs that did not end in championships, but in my opinion, 
are sometimes more impressive. That ties into the tree rings. It's watching Christmas Day game. That doesn't mean anything that the Lakers season is just, it's again, it's just a disaster. But I'm watching this individual performance and I'm going, ah, this is why I like to live in the moment and also be aware that moments thread together over the course of time. It's a reminder, you know, that something that I always need to be reminded of and something I talk about on the show all the time. You can be the best individual, but you still need enormous amounts of help to advance in the playoffs and especially to win a championship. That's the stuff I'm thinking about as I'm watching Rodgers and LeBron, two careers that really, really, really are defined by that idea. And this is where I would turn it outwards and, you know, talk to you as the listener. And I would say, yeah, like, I would encourage you to watch this stuff, to think about it. Most times I'm not here on the show arguing about things. I'm describing personal experience. I'm telling smaller stories and hope that those can be extrapolated outwards into something larger. So as you're watching this stuff, just think about it. Think about individual performance. Think about how far that can carry a team. Think about the points that occur within a game or a season or a career where contributions must occur from others. Think about how much insanity goes into affecting the outcome of every game. Uh, Pay attention when you watch. That's the only thing that I ask of people uh, who are involved with sports. Because I think within that experience, there are an infinite amount of stories being told in every single game, in every single season, and especially over the scope of an entire career. Um, And if you believe the words of Richard Powers, there's a lot of meaning within that. The best arguments in the world won't change a person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story.